All right. Again, it's good to see you this morning. Glad you could be here. Again, it's good to have you, Tim, and your family here. And uh, glad we could worship together. Good to see everybody else here as well. If you would, turn to Daniel chapter 8. We want to continue worshiping this morning by looking again at the passage in Daniel as we slowly make our way uh, through Daniel. I want to read Daniel 8 together. The book of Daniel is about the sovereignty of God. The first six chapters are about the sovereignty of God, uh, illustrated for us uh, through different stories that are recorded there, true stories of God's faithfulness and sovereignty over circumstances. Chapter 7 through 12 also speak of God's sovereignty, but through uh, the lens of prophecy. So we see in chapter 8 a prophecy of things to come. And it's important to realize that the starting point for hearing the word of God is God. Uh, One of the interesting things about the Old Testament and the temple worship in the Old Testament is that people were set apart to sing, to sing in the tabernacle, to sing in the temple. And they were singing, and the theme of their song, it says repeatedly in the Old Testament, was, the Lord is good and his loving kindness is everlasting. So that the foundation of our lives is a trust in God, and in particular, a trust in God's love for us, and then a pursuit of love for people, uh, and seeking to love people like God loves us and loves people. And so um, the question is, uh, how do we trust God and how do we love when the world gets what it wants? And that's what I want to talk about today in light of Daniel chapter 8. So if you would, look with me at Daniel chapter chapter 8 and let's read, read it together. In verse 1 it says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram butting westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the 
banks of the Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. This is the word of God. So what do we have in this chapter? Uh, In this chapter we have a prediction of what was going to happen in the 6th through the 2nd centuries B.C. and actually did happen. Um, It talks about the fact that um, a ram with two horns would arise and then a goat would um, basically overthrow the ram and then out of that goat would arise four kingdoms and out of one of those kingdoms would arise a small horn who would uh, end up uh, afflicting the people of God, the people of Israel. And if you look back on history, you can actually see that played out uh, because the ram represents um, Medo-Persia, the Persian kingdom and the um, kingdom of the Medes. They were a combined kingdom. And the Persian kingdom ultimately uh, took the ascendancy over the uh, kingdom of the Medes. And they were the kingdom that overthrew the Babylonians. Uh, Daniel is in Babylonia right now. Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. Babylon. And this vision happens right before um, the Medo-Persian empire conquers Babylon. And so they take over and they begin to have this um, worldwide domination. But ultimately, the kingdom of Greece, which is represented by the goat, will actually overthrow the kingdom of Persia. And you actually see that happening in um, the 4th century B.C. with the rise of Alexander the Great. And you notice that it says about the, the goat that the goat is moving as if he's going across the ground without even touching the ground. And that's a picture of what really actually happened. Uh, Alexander the Great moved so quickly with a very limited force in that he was, a- he was still able to strike quickly and decisively and overthrow the Persian kingdom and actually defeated them in about four years' time. In fact, he had a huge empire after only about 13 years. Uh, He moved very swiftly, and he conquered vast uh, portions of land, but he didn't live very long. You might notice in the vision, it says the conspicuous horn that was large on the goat is broken. He died at the age of just shy of uh, 33, and there's a mystery about whether or not he was poisoned or what happened, but he died early, not long after 
he uh, achieved all this conquest. And ultimately, four generals rose up and they broke his vast kingdom into four kingdoms. And that's why it talks about four horns coming out of the one horn. And then uh, later on, toward the second century BC, one of those kings arises, and his name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. The word Epiphanes means illustrious one or manifest one. And he saw himself as Zeus incarnate. And so when he talks about Antiochus Epiphanes, in his mind he means the uh, manifestation of God in the flesh. And so you see what we see reflected here is that he ta- it talks about him exalting himself um, up to the point of the commander of the host, which speaks of God, or the prince of princes, which speaks of God. So that in his own heart and mind, he magnified himself to be God-like. And in the process, he sought to overthrow uh, the worship of God. He stopped the worship in the temple. He built an altar of Zeus over the altar in the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar in the second temple that was built after the exile. He uh, forbid the worship of Jehovah. He made it uh, illegal. In fact, a death penalty if you circumcised your kids. He tried to force the Jewish people to worship pagan gods. It was a horrific thing that was taking place, that actually took place. And it actually led to the Maccabean Revolt. And ultimately, the temple was restored. And even today, the Jewish people celebrate the restoration of that temple after all that happened, and they call it Hanukkah. That's what they celebrate. And so this, all this that we see in this chapter actually took place, but it was predicted almost 400 years before it took place, at least in terms of what Antiochus IV did, uh, what the ram did took place very quickly after this vision is seen by, by Daniel. But the question is, why did God give his people this vision? And it's very helpful to think about why he did that. The people were promised that they would have a certain amount of time in Babylon, 70 years. And then they would, they would return to their land, the land of promise and that God would bless them when they returned to that land. And so when, after all that took place, after the temple was rebuilt, for someone to come in and actually uh, sacrifice a pig in the temple and overthrow the worship of God, in a sense, would have been unimaginable. They would be asking the question, wait a minute, didn't God promise us blessing when we return from uh, the land of Babylon? Didn't he say that things were going to be different and more wonderful and greater in certain ways? Where is God in all of this? Has God abandoned us? Is God not going to keep his promises to us? Those are the kinds of things that we often think ourselves when we go through very, very dark times. This is picturing a very, very dark time in the, in the history of Israel. Um, just this week, uh, Jan had a conversation with a neighbor in our neighborhood when she was walking around, and uh, the neighbor was talking about the, the shootings that have happened recently uh, in the grocery store, in the hospital, and she was basically expressing, as an older lady, about 80 years old, she was saying, you know, I'm just afraid to go anywhere. Just never know what's going to happen. Things are getting so bad in our country. And essentially, Jan responded by highlighting two things, uh, the sovereignty of God that can bring us comfort and that there are consequences to the rejection of God. This chapter speaks to both of those things, that we can find comfort in God's sovereignty over even the darkest of times, and we should as God's people. But we also should see in the dark times that there are consequences to the rejection of God. And as we read through Daniel 8, there were a lot of things going on, and um, some of what is going on is in response to the, the people who are still not 
uh, trusting God and following God as they should. And so the meme that I have here I found online in reading an article that is talking about the same kinds of things that I just mentioned, uh, what happens when a society begins to rot, so to speak, what is the, the spiritual dynamic. And so this meme says God is dead, there is no objective morality, all life is a cosmic accident, everything came from nothing and will return to nothing, humans have no value until they can live independently. Then the question, how could a person commit such unspeakable evil against their fellow human beings? The point of the meme is to say, do the math. If people are embracing uh, the idea that God is dead, if there's no objective morality, there's no right and wrong, um, all life is just a cosmic accident, there's no creator, nobody's made in the image of God, there is no purpose to life beyond just doing whatever you feel like doing, everything comes from nothing, will return to nothing, humans have no value until they can live independently, and you could even argue that they may not have any value at all if they're just a cosmic accident. So if you add all that up, it translates into how can you even talk about unspeakable evil? If there is no objective morality, then there is no evil. There is no right and wrong. Um, and so the meme is highlighting there's an inconsistency with even asking the question, how could someone commit an unspeakable evil? But there's also just the reality that people commit unspeakable evil when a society rejects God and right and wrong and any accountability after this life and those kinds of basic truths. And so what we find, I think, in Daniel chapter 8 and in the Bible in all kinds of ways is that there are times when God will give people and societies over to themselves uh, he will give sinners what they want so that we can see what is the fruit of getting what we want. Um, in verse 4, it talks about the kingdom of Persia and the leader of Persia did as he pleased. Well, who, who let him do as he pleased? God did. It says in verse 12 um, that... Um, he, speaking of um, this small horn, will fling truth to the ground and perform its will or his will and prosper. Under whose watch? Under God's watch. God allows him to do what he wants to do. And the reality is this chapter is talking about the fact that when God gives people over to leaders and uh, people who are just basically doing what it says in Deuteronomy and Judges, uh, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. What is the fruit of every man doing what is right in his own eyes? I entitled the message, When the World Gets What It Wants. What do I mean by that? Naturally, in our sinful state, we want freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from God freedom from an, a standard of right and wrong outside of ourselves. Uh, we want a freedom from accountability to God. We don't have to, want to have to answer to him one day. So basically what we want naturally and sinfully is the freedom to do anything we want to do. That's what we want. That was the implication of the temptation in the Garden of Eden. You can be like God. You can do whatever you want. Doesn't the Bible say God does whatever he wants, whatever he desires. And so the idea of being like God is to be able to determine what is right and wrong for myself and to do what I want to do. And so what, what happens when uh, a society or a person uh, gets what they want, gets the freedom to do what they want to do? Well, you get things like uh, what happened in um, Uvalde or in the grocery store, or in the hospital. Uh, you get um, terrible things that happen because you can't have freedom from God and the blessings of God. You can't have uh, an embracing of sin 
and not have the consequences of embracing sin. But that's what we want. We want to reject God and still have the blessings of God. And God will say, I'm going to show you what it looks like when people reject me. I'm going to show you what a society looks like. And so that's what I want want us to think through as we see just a few things in this chapter and highlight how it applies to us today. And the first point is simply that um, the Bible in all kinds of ways talks about the fact that you and I reap what we sow. And I'm relating this to uh, what it says in verse 12 when it says, And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. It's a very um, a graphic image there. It's kind of like if I were to take this Bible and slam it to the ground, I'd be flinging truth to the ground. It's a picture of saying, I disdain and hate the truth of God. I will not give attention to it. I will make up my own truth. I will make up my own right and wrong. I will do what I want to do to pursue my own happiness. And what we see here is we see leaders uh, among the Medo-Persians and the Greeks doing that very thing, leading in that way. And it's picturing for us the fruit of a godless society, that deceit and destruction and a trampling tyranny is the fruit of a godless society, that there are consequences, indeed severe consequences, to rejecting God. Um, Verse 24 says, His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree. So you've got these leaders who are flinging truth to the ground and destroying to an extraordinary degree. You need to make that connection there. The connection is you fling truth to the ground and it bears the fruit of destruction. It does not bear the fruit of blessing and the happiness that seems to be promised. Um, the article that I was talking about entitled How Republics Rot talked about the idea that in our country you have people that will say if there is no God, or if there is a God, he's not really involved in what's going on. And the article argues that things follow from those conclusions, that our ideas have consequences. So if I embrace the idea there is no God, if I embrace the idea that if there is a God, you know, he's not really involved. When you begin to act on that, what happens in a country? Well, there are people in our government today who are acting on what that looks like. What does it look like to follow through with your thinking? There is no God. There's no objective right and wrong. There is no life after death. We are here to uh, basically make utopia on our own. What does that look like? Well, you begin to do all kinds of things that deny everything that God says is true, everything that God says is right, everything that God says is good. And that's what we see happening in our country in so many ways. And in this article, he mentions Matthew 7, 16, where it says, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. Which means you can expect certain things for certain kinds of trees or certain kinds of plants. Or if you plant something, you should expect to get what you plant. If you plant corn... You should expect to get corn. In our country, though, we plant a godless society and we expect to get the fruit of a godly society. The reality is that many would say we've been living off of the uh, Christian heritage that was laid by our forefathers and we've received the blessings of that Christian heritage. But the foundation for that Christian heritage has been long removed. And we've just been simply eating the leftover fruit of that. The leftover fruit of that is coming to an end. And we're beginning to reap what we've sown, which is the fruit of a godless society. And it's resulting in all kinds of lawlessness, all kinds of uh, lack of love. And it highlights the fact what it says in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. 
God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Whatever a man sows, whatever an organization sows, whatever a country sows, whatever a society or culture sows, that is what they will reap. And that is what we see happening in our day and time. And so for all of us, we have to ask ourselves, so what am I planting in my garden? What am I seeking to cultivate? And do I realize that there is a connection between yesterday and today? And there's a connection between today and tomorrow. And am I taking heart the fact that God will not be mocked? There is a principle that works through life. It works for us individually. It works for us on a societal level that we will reap what we sow. And it's meant to encourage us to look at what we're sowing and to make sure that we're sowing in light of the word of God. We're sowing to the spirit and not to our flesh. The second point that I want us to see that's highlighted in this chapter in a way, it says we were made to worship, so someone must fill the void. So in one sense, we can see how uh, what's played out in chapter 8 and what's playing out in our own country is the idea that societies reject God. But they don't reject the idea that there needs to be a God. Um, We were made to worship. So we will find something or someone to worship. And when the true God is rejected, men who pretend to be God will step in to fill the void. In verse 11, it says it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. In verse 25, it says he will even oppose the prince of princes, which highlights the fact that these leaders being referred to here take on uh, this godlike perspective. And I mentioned already that Antiochus Epiphanes saw himself as the incarnation of Zeus. And the reality is that if we do not worship God, in some sense we will, will worship men. And that's why for a lot of people who do not believe that there is a God, for them politics is everything. For them, having someone in power to do what they want them to do is everything. Because like Francis Schaeffer said, if there is no God above the state, the state becomes God. That's just the way it works. And that's what we see happening in our country is that God has been rejected but he's also been replaced. And he's been replaced by uh, men who, who claim to be God. There's an interesting passage in Matthew chapter 12, in verses 43 through 45. The context of it is that the uh, Pharisees, religious leaders, are accusing Jesus of the, um, casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. And the Lord Jesus is talking about uh, the judgment day and how those who've uh, seen his miracles and experienced his ministry are going to be uh, judged in a sense by uh, those like uh, those of Sodom and Gomorrah because they haven't received the uh, benefit and have rejected the ministry of Jesus. And he says in verse 43, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And it does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more, than, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now, it's very easy to say, well, Jesus is talking about if you cast out a demon and the person isn't saved, eventually the demon will gather up, other demons come back, and the last condition of the man will be worse than his first condition. Well, that could very well be part of the the picture there. But in the context, you notice the last thing he says, this is the way it will be with this evil generation. He's making a point about the people of Israel in the days of his ministry. And he's highlighting the fact that when a society is given great blessing, great truth, a great work of God, 
and they benefit from it, just like a man who would benefit from being delivered from demons. But they fundamentally reject it. Their latter state will be worse than their former state. That's what we see happening in our country. We have benefited from a godly heritage, from the gospel, and we've been blessed richly by it. But we have fundamentally rejected God and Jesus. And things are getting worse than they were before. And so the Lord Jesus is just highlighting again that there are consequences to rejecting God. There are consequences to receiving the benefits of the gospel and of the truth in a society and then fundamentally rejecting that blessing. Well, the third thing is that history will be repeated. Um, If we reject God and then we begin to operate as if we are God, um, there will be consequences to it. There will be horrendous atrocities. Um, One of the things that, for me, in my understanding of this passage, in verse 11, it says, it speaks of the, the small horn. He magnified it itself or himself to be equal with the commander of the host and it removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down Uh, and other uh, passages in Daniel it's spoken of in terms of the abomination of desolation that when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed the pig on the altar in the temple it was an abomination that desolates that dishonors God and destroys the proper worship of God. And the Lord Jesus referred to the same thing in Matthew 24 when he said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, he goes on to say, this is what you need to do. And um, the reality is, Jesus also said that when he comes back, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah which means there's going to be a repeat. And so on the one hand, Jesus could say what happened under Antiochus Epiphanes is going to happen in this century. And what happened in the days of Noah is going to happen again right before I return. And so the Bible talks about the fact that there are foreshadowings that take place in history. Um, The flood was a foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment. Uh, Jesus says what happened under Antiochus Epiphanes was a foreshadowing shadowing of what was going to happen uh, in 70 AD in the destruction of the temple. And yet it's also, that was also a foreshadowing of what would happen at the end of time. In Ecclesiastes it says, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. So the kinds of things that have happened in the past will continue to happen until they happen in their ultimate final form. And that's why a lot of people see what happened in Daniel 8 as being fulfilled uh, before the first return of Christ. But they believe it will also be ultimately fulfilled right before the second uh, coming of Christ. And so could there be another Nero? Yes. Could there be another Hitler? Yes, people will say, uh, the Holocaust, never again. And I would say, uh, there will be. There will be. Uh, History will repeat itself. There will be other dark times, and there will be an uh, ultimate dark time as well. But the good news is, the darkness precedes the dawn. Uh, God has ordered things that there is night, and then there is day. And... Uh, right, right after what Antiochus Epiphanes did, Jesus came. There was darkness, and then there was dawn. And right before Jesus comes and returns, there will be darkness before the dawn, which I believe, in light of what this chapter says and the rest of Scripture says, I believe it will look like Satan has won just before the seed of the woman crushes the serpent. Now, the reality is there are all kinds of ideas about how things are going to play out. Um, There are different ideas about eschatology. But it says in verse 10, 
It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. Speaking of uh, godly people being pictured that, there is the host of heaven. Verse 12, it says, on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn. And then in verse 13, it says, while, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? In verse 24, it says, he will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Think about that. He will destroy the holy people. Those are using strong terms to talk about what the Bible says in other places, which is the great persecution or the great tribulation that takes place right before Christ comes back. And yet in verse 25, it says, he will be broken without human agency. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes died from a severe, painful disease. The Bible says that the Antichrist, which many people believe is also pictured by Antiochus Epiphanes, will be destroyed by Jesus himself. He will be broken without human agency, but by divine agency. So it appears to be picturing what is going to happen in the end. And why is that important? Because what if indeed, before Christ comes back, or maybe at certain times before Christ comes back, and then ultimately right before Christ comes back, there are really, really dark times. What are we supposed to do? What are you supposed to think? Are we to doubt the goodness of God? Are we to doubt that his loving kindness is everlasting? There's an interesting passage in Luke 18 that I think applies where it says in verse 1, Now he, Jesus, was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. At all times, even the darkest of times. Saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because of this widow, because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God... Bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night. And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Need to connect verse 1 and verse 8. In verse 1, Jesus says, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Then he asked the question, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And in between, he encourages us to pray. And the picture that he gives us is the picture of a widow who needs help. She needs to be rescued. She needs uh, someone to uh, come and do something on her behalf because she's uh, being opposed. Her enemy is opposing her. And Jesus says, just like this widow keeps going to the judge for help, and this judge says, I don't want to help this widow. I don't care what God thinks. I don't care what people think. I don't want to help this widow. She keeps going back and forth, and finally he says, she's going to wear me out, so I'm just going to get her off my back, and I'm going to give her what she wants. And Jesus says, God is not like the judge in that he doesn't want to help you, but you will be tempted to think he's just like that judge who does not want to help you because he doesn't seem to be responding to your prayer because times are dark. Enemies are great. It seems like God has abandoned his people. And Antiochus Epiphany slaughtered many, many Jewish people and enslaved them. So you've got the people of God being slaughtered, maybe even to the point where people wonder, will there even be any believers left? Jesus even said about the great tribulation that those days will be shortened for the sake of the elect. Meaning that I'm not going to allow this to go to the point of the obliteration of all my people, 
but it's going to get pretty dark. So what do we do when it gets dark? And it doesn't sound like God is responding. Jesus says, keep praying, don't lose heart. Why? Keep trusting God that he's good and that his loving kindness is everlasting. And one day, God will crush Satan under your feet, Paul says in Romans 16. Well, the fifth thing that I just want to highlight is if we want no God, we get no good, which means if we reject God and we worship man and we embrace things that flow out of that rejection and uh, all these things are happening, we have to realize that there is a close connection between God and good. And we live in a society that wants good without God. And it doesn't work that way. Um, In verse 25, it says, He will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many. Put those two pictures together. This is a guy who's very proud. He wants to be God himself. And what is the fruit of his life? He destroys many. That is what happens. Um, You don't get blessing by rejecting the supreme good. You don't get blessing by rejecting the source of all good. If you reject the source of all good, you don't get good. And so that's why it says in Romans 1, uh, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There's a kind of poetic justice where the um, punishment fits the crime, where God says, you don't want me, so I'm going to give you what is the fruit of not having me. Um, It's like... C.S. Lewis said, there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, which are believers, thy will be done, and those who, to whom God says, thy will be done. So there are those who say to God, thy will be done. There are those that God says to them, your will be done. You want freedom from me? You want freedom from right and wrong? You want to See what happens when you have no accountability to a sovereign God, no life after death. You want to just be free to do what you want to do. Let me show you what that looks like, what kind of society that creates. Let me give you over to the great exchange, exchanging God for the worship of the creature. It's sort of like um, the opposite of the picture of the guy who fell off a cliff and he's holding onto a branch and he says is anybody up there and God says I'm up here and he says help me God help me God says okay let go of the branch and he says is there anybody else up there just flip that around to where God is the one holding the man and the man is saying let me go God let me go God let me go God and God isn't letting him go then God says, okay. And what happens? The natural sinful gravity takes hold and you plunge deeper and deeper into hell. Hellish relationships, hellish experiences, that's what happens when God lets a society go, lets a person go, gives them what they want. Just leave me alone. And that's meant to be instructive for us when we see what happens when God lets people go because the Bible says every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. If God doesn't give us good things, we won't have them. And if we reject God, we reject his good things. Well, the question is then, why is there any good in the world? Most people ask the question, why is there evil in the world? The real question is, why is there any good in the world? If the world has rejected God, then why is there still good in the world? And you could say it's because indignation has an expiration date. 
It says in verse 19, he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The final period of the indignation. Now, obviously, in some sense, that relates to what happened in the second century B.C., There's another sense in which it relates to the history of the world. The Bible says in Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Indignation every day. He is defied and dishonored every single day. And this passage talks about the final period of indignation when God is going to bring an end to that indignation that he's going to bring closure to that indignation. The Bible talks about the fact that there is a day of salvation, but one day that day will come to an end. And that's what I think we see in Daniel 8, the Bible talks about. But right now, the Bible says God is good and ready to forgive. The Bible says he sends the sun and the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's an opportunity for mercy and forgiveness. Spurgeon said, it is a marvel of mercy that the sun should rise on the rebellious sons of men. It's a marvel of mercy in light of the indignation in the face of God every day. Let me wrap this up for this morning. This passage, on the one hand, is meant to give God's people hope that just because it's dark doesn't mean God isn't still with us. We might not be able to see God, feel God. We may not be able to see his good hand at work. All we might see is people being more and more wicked and hard and lawless. And yet the Bible tells us that God is sovereign over that. He has a good purpose for giving people over and giving societies over to their sin. But we can still trust him to keep his promises to us can trust him to fulfill his good purposes in our lives. He will glorify his name. He will exalt his son. He will receive the purchase that he made on Calvary. And he will fulfill uh, all that he's promised to his people. We can trust him for that. And that's why verses 15 through 17 talk about uh, Gabriel give understanding to this man. Let this man, Daniel, know that God is at work in this very, very dark, dark time. In Romans 15, it says that we've been given the scriptures for the encouragement so that we might have hope. So what is this uh, chapter supposed to do for us? It should make us grieve because it says that it sickened Daniel when he saw the vision. It grieved him. And when we think about how bad it might get in our own country and how bad it will get in the end, whenever that does come, It should grieve us. It should sicken us to see how God is defiled, or excuse me, defied, and how, in a sense, his worship is defiled. Um, But yet it should comfort us that we can be reminded of God's sovereignty. It's like what we find in Habakkuk 3, where Habakkuk has just found out that um, Babylon is going to enter into the land of Israel and um, judge Israel. And he says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place, I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, And there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. Habakkuk is saying, no matter how bad it gets, I can trust God to be my strength and to enable me to deal with whatever is to come. It certainly should sober us how bad it might get when sin is unrestrained. And it should remind us of how long-suffering God is and that he warns us of the fruit of rejecting him. It's interesting that um, 
the book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, from which they made the movies. Uh, it was written in 1964. It's about five children who get a golden ticket, get to go into this chocolate factory. And four of those children uh, have um, an unpleasant demise, so to speak. Um, you've got Augustus, uh, what's his name, Augustus Gloop or something like that, um, who gets sucked up into um, a, a chocolate a vat, so to speak. You've got uh, Baruch Salt, who um, is spoiled and gets sent down a bad egg shoot. You've got chewing gum addicted Violet Beauregard, who gets big and uh, has to be carted off, and then television addict Mike TV, who gets very, very small. To make a long story short, what is that all about? It's about children who say, I want what I want. Don't stand in my way. I want what I want. And then they get the fruit of what they want. And the Bible says God will often deal that way with us or with society. And so we always have to conclude by asking ourselves, what do I want? What do I really want? Do I want to be free from God? Then God will say, okay, I'll let you be free from me and I'll show you what that looks like. Do I want to be left alone? Then God will say, all right, I'll leave you alone. I'll show you what the fruit of that is. Do I really want God to give me what I deserve? God says, okay, I'll show you what it looks like for me to give you what you deserve. Or do I want mercy from God? The story that follows Uh, The story about prayer in Luke 18 is the one of the righteous man and the tax collector. The righteous man, the Pharisee, basically says, I thank you, God, that I'm so wonderful. And I know you'll bless me because I am, is essentially what he was saying. The other man, the tax collector, says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said in light of that, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. What we see in Daniel 8 is the proud being humbled. And it's a call for all of us to humble ourselves that we might be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word that is meant to speak to us today in light of what you've said and done in the past. It's meant to prepare us for the future. It's meant to prepare us for dark times so that we trust in you. And what you've promised, we trust in your purposes. We trust that you are good and that your loving kindness is everlasting. Please grant us grace to trust you. At the same time, Father, help us to see that there, there are consequences to sin. There are consequences to rejecting you, just individually and as a society. And help us to pray for our country. Help us to pray for each other. Help us to pray for our own hearts that we would humble ourselves and ask for mercy, and that we would seek to find our joy and our happiness in you. So, Father, please help us to ask the question, what do I want? And do I really want God? Do I want God's mercy? Please speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.